Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Yesterday, we had a pretty big announcement from up in the Senate, and that was that... The now, you know, this is another one of those cases that we've been talking about that you can't describe accurately when there's big news in the Senate, big news on Capitol Hill, big news in our nation's politics without getting into these like obscure, kind of like weird jargon and stuff. Because, like, the big news is that they, they've come up with a framework for a reconciliation proposal. Like, well, the who? budget resolution that precedes the reconciliation proposal, right. technically. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, and so basically what this is, is that as we know, most of the stuff that Democrats want to do, most of the budget related stuff that Democrats want to do are going to have to go through the process of reconciliation. Uh, and that, it, because that's how you pass things with 50 votes. And that is basically an artifact of the budget the budgetary process for how the U.S. Congress passes budgets. And uh, without getting too much into the technical details, as part of that process, and again, the reason you're doing this process is this is how you get to the 50-vote rules. And um, how that works is you have to, you have to come up with a, uh, again, here we go again, a vehicle you know, a vehicle, right? We're not talking about a car. We're talking about a an outline piece of legislation. But the key is you, you basically say, okay, we're going to do a bill and it's going to have this size. It's going to be this total amount of money. And you agree on that. And then you pass a budget resolution, which is kind of an outline. You know, we're going to spend this much on this, spend this much on that, blah, 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 blah. And then you come in later and actually say, okay, we're going to spend it on this, you know, an actual specify everything. But the point here is the reason we care about this in a in a political sense is that we have been we as a country have been going back and forth a few months about is Joe Biden going to be able to pass this very ambitious, very large, very expensive infrastructure package which as we've discussed has hard infrastructure surface roads, stuff like that, surface transportation, and the soft infrastructure, social safety net stuff. And is the Democratic caucus, which as we know, has only 50 members, so every single member of the caucus has to agree on everything. They have to be unanimous. Are they going to be able to come up with something they can agree on where they got their own little, you know, they've got a little mini bipartisan bill, and then they're going to get the rest of the stuff in a reconciliation bill. And 
is there going to be enough stuff that the moderates are on board and the progressives are on board? And are you going to be able to get in roads and also caring economy? And what about climate? There was a there was a worry for a while that uh, you know roads had a constituency and the caring economy stuff had a constituency. But maybe the and and the idea kind of was you're going to do the roads with Republicans and you're going to do the caring economy stuff with just Democrats. And maybe the climate stuff is is, you know, what is that thing where uh, what's that game you play when you're kids where like, you know, the music stops and who doesn't have a chair when the music stops? Maybe when the music stops, you know, the climate isn't going to have a chair. Um, But the gist was yesterday that it seemed like the climate did end up with a chair. Basically, again, we're talking outlines here. And they came up with this plan that was $3.5 trillion. And that is in addition to, if it passes, that bipartisan hard infrastructure bill. And suddenly it kind of seemed like, okay, maybe, maybe this is all going to come together. And you're going to get something like what President Biden proposed in the spring. Um, just one step, but a, but a pretty substantial one, and, and one that has a pretty big price tag. Uh, you know, there's been this debate in the, in the press where uh, uh, Senator Sanders, who obviously is not only sort of, you know, in effect, the head of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but he's also the head of the budget committee in the Senate, which is the you know, which is where you write budgets. So that's a key, a very key central part of this of this negotiation. And a little while back, he'd said, "All right, let's we're going to do six trillion. And then everybody said, "Oh man, Bernie, sad trombone, man, didn't work out. You had to come down to three point five trillion dollars." Now, I think that kind of missed the point that you never start with an opening bid where you think you're going to be. It may not even be what you even want, but you don't negotiate against yourself. And the reality is that 3.5 trillion plus you know another upwards of a trillion in the bipartisan thing plus that competition and innovation bill, it's very very large. So that was a big moment and it's funny, you know, just before um a little before we started recording this episode of the podcast, I did a TPM inside briefing with Brian Schatz, senator from from uh, from Hawaii, and we were talking about this. And uh, if you're if you remember, it's it's really interesting. Probably going to be up on the up on the site tomorrow. Um, but people are kind of cautiously optimistic. People who really who 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 care about the all three of those you know buckets and and particularly climate climate is like a big big thing for him he's a big climate guy uh you know it makes sense if you're from an island right i mean the north american continent <laughs> it's not going to disappear under any climate change scenario islands can disappear you know Hawaii's got some pretty tall parts, so it's not all going to go. But an island kind of focuses, you know, focuses your attention uh, on 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 what the whole climate thing can mean. And then uh, we're also going to we're also going to talk about in this episode, probably a little more briefly, but 
there's these uh, few stories that came out over the last uh, 48 hours uh, that are basically General Milley, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who this book that is put out by two Post reporters, you know, again, one of these Trump books, right? The last year of Trump and all that kind of stuff. It gave him a, a sort of a podium to explain what was happening and, you know, from his point of view, from his version of events in last December and January after the election, before, you know, before uh, President Biden became president. And it's pretty crazy stuff, you know, him saying that he was, you know, he was thinking the president was going to, was going to try to have a coup and stay in power and what he was going to do and all this kind of stuff. So that's, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff coming out about that too. Uh, Before we get to that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can experience the freshest way to cold brew the summer with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. The ultra convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans and imported French chicory. No need for any equipment. You just add water to the reusable spigot pouch to brew 36 cups of bold, velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part, no more waiting in lines or paying coffee shop prices. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and costs less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate, what's up? Were you on the hill today? You were on the hill in the... In the Fresh from the hill, yep. So, what? what's what's the story? Democrats are just elated, I would say. I Obviously, I haven't been up there too much due to the pandemic, but this is the first time that I've been there that all of them kind of seem uniformly really stoked, you know, because before when I was there, right after the bipartisan deal had been, you know, it announced that the White House had agreed to the framework, progressives were really nervous because they were really feeling like this is all that's going to happen on infrastructure. Reconciliation is going to go by the wayside. So really this yesterday, today, it's just the first time it feels like the entire caucus is pretty much all equally very euphoric and optimistic, even maybe optimistic to the point of like, you know, there's going to be a lot, a lot of hard stuff looming. Yeah, were, were you like having to tell them like, hey, hey, like, uh, settle down, Pat Leahy. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah, well, don't get ahead of yourself, bud. Well, so I was basically, what I was up there trying to do today was to figure out where are the tension points going to emerge a bit further down the road, you know, when legislative text actually starts getting written. Um, so I was trying to figure out, you know, what's your what's your number one must have priority kind of thing in this bill. And I would say, in keeping with the unanimity theme, there was a lot of, you know, I'm not going to draw lines in the sand, it's more important to kind of get the reconciliation vehicle passed and to get my pet project in it. And I actually talked to the aforementioned Senator Schatz, and he was like, you know, this isn't a normal bill. This isn't the kind of bill where I think people are thinking it's a moving vehicle. I can get my my political hobby horse into it. I think it's much more, he said, the sense is that they're at this point anyway, really not negotiating against themselves. It's It does feel like more of a group effort kind of thing. But now, when did I- you- no, go, you go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, so when I, but I pushed them a bit to be like, okay, yeah, but what's your priority? What's the thing that you really want in this package, you know? And 
it was all climate change. You know, that was the answer I heard over and over again. And it does just seem to set up a future some future potholes at the least, you know, you've got, because on the one hand, you've got the fact that the bird rule, which is what determines what can be included in reconciliation. And it's supposed to have a direct effect on the budget. Um, even though sometimes those, those questions are a bit amorphous. And then you get into the land of the Senate parliamentarian making the ruling on what does and doesn't count. Um, and some of the climate proposals are not straightforwardly things that clearly affect the budget. You know, I'm I'm not talking taxes, credits. Okay, that stuff's going to sail. That's going to be easy. But stuff like the clean electricity standard, um, which is, you know, an attempt to cut down on carbon emissions. That's going to be hard. The, they have uh, the conservation civilian core. That might be hard. You know, so there are these kind of built-in difficulties that are popping up because the Senate is being forced to basically govern in such a weird way right now because the filibuster blocks off every other avenue. So you're trying to shoehorn all this stuff into a process that's meant to just be budgetary. So you've got that kind of built-in obstacle. And then you also have the human obstacle in the form of Joe Manchin, who happens to be the chairman of the Energy Committee, which is going to like you said earlier, Josh, you know, as soon as we kind of have the top line numbers figured out, it then goes to the committees to deal with the amount of money they're allotted and to break that down into legislative language. And he is going to play a really big part in the climate provisions that go into the bill by virtue of being the energy chairman. Now, let me as, as, let me ask you this. Ahead. Did you did you get a chance, whether it's Manchin or other people, did you get a chance to to, you know, see or be around the senators who are the, you, you know, who are going to be the, the, the problem cases on the right flank, for lack of a better word, the centrist flank, whatever you want to call it, those people and get any sort of read on their mood with, you know, are those people pumped or, or is this just kind of finally the progressives feeling, you know, getting some sense that they may not be, you know, left out in the cold? Well, I would say, um, I mean, it's kind of who, I guess, who are we saying are right flank? Like Manchin, Tester, maybe, I guess, Cinema. Even though Cinema avoids reporters like the plague, I've literally never seen her in person. But um, yeah, I mean, Manchin came out of the meeting with Joe Biden yesterday, sounding extremely positive. Of course, he did kind of throw a firebomb in the same round of comments to reporters where he said that he's very concerned about language, about moving away from fossil fuels. We need to retain our energy independence, which, you know, like I was kind of getting at, does preview a potential fight down the road. Now, let me let me ask you this. And this, this is one thing that I have, uh, you know, let's assume for the sake of conversation that the top line number, you know, that he's basically on board with the top mm -hmm. line number. Which seems to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... It's been a little hard for me to get, or or I've been interested to get a sense of the nuance of 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 where Mansion is on climate for this reason. He's from a coal state that, you know, that is the ultimate, the dirtiest fossil fuel. Uh, it is, you know, if you're from a state, it's hard to it's hard to you know. Uh, uh, slit the throat of your of, of one of your main industries right that's just a that's just a reality that I think everybody has to kind of uh, get having said that um, it's not an oil state right it's not it, it, and um, 
there seems to be, you know, the big miners union uh, at the beginning of this actually came out in favor of the sort of came out in favor of the of the plan and as i as i remember it there i think they had this thing a just transition that i think they're basically kind of seeing look coal is not a long-term proposition and let's let's uh you know let's figure out how we can survive in this new political economy you know kind of climate era blah 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 blah, blah. in any case it's not clear to me why Joe Manchin ca- – I mean, why would Joe Manchin care if if you want to spend a lot of money in retrofitting houses for insulation, right? That doesn't affect West Virginia. It has nothing to do with anything with him. So, uh, so when we talk about like, you know, moving away from fossil fuels, does he really care about moving? I mean, he cares, from, cares about coal. He's trying to at least um, – you know, soften the transition away from coal because it's a big domestic industry. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, where are the, on that kind of global issue? Yeah. I mean, with a caveat that most of them are shying away from specifics at this point, I would say that I know specifically on the clean electricity standard, um, Tina Smith of Minnesota has kind of been out front on that. Um, And she said that she's been having conversations specifically with Manchin for a while now to kind of see if that was going to be a possibility. What what is that? What is this electricity? What does that mean? Clean electricity standard? a, A standard put into place so that by 2030, uh, carbon emissions are halved and, um, 80% clean energy. So the point is that forcing utilities to, uh, to abide by these standards, which will produce, you know, much fewer emissions, forcing them to kind of go to greener energy sources. So broadly speaking, if I'm understanding this, if you're, if there's a, you know, the major utility in your state, uh, at X point, they need to like, it's not that they're saying, oh, you can't do oil or you can't do, you know, natural gas or whatever. You can do your mix, but it has to be 80%. So basically, it puts a lot of pressure to move away from fossil fuels. Right. Um, and that's going to, and, and electricity is, is, I mean, it's a lot different than it was even a decade ago. But, um, you know, we're not, we're not running our, uh, you know, coal is basically for electricity that's what it's used for so that's going to put some downward pressure on coal so how to did you get any sense talking to her i mean what's the basis of the conversation that that seems like one of the conversations probably pretty hard for him to have he per her he's open to it so you know and it's mansion as we've discussed he's so he's inscrutable sometimes because it's not always clear that he kind of knows specifically what he's commenting about at any given time, you know? So I don't know. I wouldn't, you know, I want to hesitate before putting all our weight on what she said, but you know, she's been proactively having these conversations so far. He sounded open to it. So, I mean, I do think that we're in for a few kind of mansion tantrums of different shapes and size along this, along this process. And I'm sure he's going to have an issue with some, some climate propositions, but you know, everything that's on the table, it's like a fairly wide swath. You know, when we do say climate change provisions, like there's 
a lot of different angles to come at it. So, you know, it might kind of be a deal with how he he had that 11th hour issue with the unemployment uh, benefit last time and kind of, so I, I can see it being kind of like marginal things like that, but at least from what we've seen from him before, he, as much for all the talk, he doesn't really end up seeming to torpedo things when they're this far along in the process. And obviously long way to go here, but, um, I don't know. I just, from the optimism of people who are not rosy colored people, I was just kind of taken aback, I guess, that there does seem to be, you know, from from the centrist to the progressives, just a good feeling mm-hmm. on the Hill mm-hmm. this week. Interesting. Now, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's funny. One of uh, someone from the White House a little while back told me, like, at, at that point, maybe, I don't know, six weeks ago, when it was really kind of like, what's happening here? Like, are we, is this, is this all dying on the vine kind of thing? And this person said to me kind of like, you know, the thing is with Manchin that he's, you know, he's a real pain, but he is yet to really cut us off. Mm-hmm. You know, he makes every step really hard, but there has not been a point so far when there's some critical priority and he just shuts us down and and we, we can't, you know, we, 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 we can't get there. Now, obviously... Um, some of that is because they 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 are willing to kind of put things off, right? I mean, he sort of you know you could say he shut us he shut them down on 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 uh, voting protections, mm-hmm. but that's only because they've kind of they've everybody's sort of agreeing to pretend that oh it's 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 coming right it's it's we're still talking about it, and it's funny in this conversation that I had with uh, Shots, you know. Uh, this isn't some big like you know ex- exclusive or or. or um, or anything. But he makes the point, like, you know, why things take so long? Well, because we didn't have the votes. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, we could have we could have done it in the in this in the spring, but we had 46 votes. So you move as quickly as you can when you have the votes. And what you right. know, what do you what do you want what do you want us to say kind of thing? Um so here here now you were you were, and I'm sure you still are, uh following closely, you know, the great uh you know, bipartisan mini bill mm-hmm. and all the kind of the back and forths over that. And you've had some of the kind of the standard Republican players in the Senate Republican leadership saying, oh, 3.5 trillion is making it pretty hard for us to still be there on uh, on the mini bill. Do you have a do you have a sense here of if that if they cannot get 10 Republican senators, which like, who are we kidding? I mean, that sounds almost absurd that they're going to get 10 Republican senators to vote for that thing. What happens then? Does that, does that spending go away? Do they just like pile it into the reconciliation bill and say, fine, you already kind of, you know, you already put, you know, bipartisan holy water on it. So it's bipartisan. Even if you don't vote for it, great. Who cares? Or what's, Mm -hmm. what's, do you get a feel for that? That is my understanding that that was the plan to kind of just bundle it into the reconciliation bill if it fails, which, you know, that can be open to criticism. You know, I think it's it's fair to criticize, oh, what, you're going to take the GOP negotiated proposals and put it in a package that approximately zero of them are going to vote for. But yeah, that seemed to be the plan that I heard last when things looked shaky, which they look shaky from the Republicans like at every kind of step of this process. Well, let me, let me ask you about that. Cause let's, I want to, and, and this is, I, I want to think this through myself that obviously uh, it was a small bill, you know, it was 
small. It mm-hmm. had uh, not enough of this, not enough of that. But what is the what is the downside of adding that? Like what what is what is what is it that is in that bill that is affirmatively bad as opposed to not as good as it should have been? Well, the example I got when I was talking to people about this last time was money for electric vehicle infrastructure. It's like a fourth maybe of the amount of money that Biden wanted in his kind of outline for it. And so when I was asking these people all who are kind of like longtime Senate veteran types, you know, do you think this is something they would do? Is that crazy to do? They were just like, yeah, I mean, why would you accept so little money for something when you can just beef it up in reconciliation? Well, so, okay. So here, but here's, I mean, obviously, you know, once again, in this whole thing, we are, we are, you know, perambulating around Joe Manchin's and yep. Kirsten Cinema's <laughs> nonsense. It's all yep. kind of angels on the head of a pin. But I would think that the issue, if you if you just bundle it in, the reason you bundle it in is that the two of them and the other people who the bipartisanship thing means a lot can say, hey, we negotiated a bipartisan bill. And, uh, you know, if if when this comes up for a vote next week, maybe it gets six Republican senators. Mm-hmm. And so they can they can kind of say, I mean, again, it's all kind of nonsense in a, from a certain perspective. But from another perspective, they could still say, hey, we negotiated a bipartisan bill. It got six Republican votes. Now, in reality, that wasn't enough. So it died and you just kind of, you know, resurrected it and poured it into the reconciliation bill. But that maybe can work for some people. And so why couldn't you do that and then just say, okay, if you didn't, if, uh, if you didn't get your electric vehicle infrastructure, just put that in the reconciliation, take some of the reconciliation money and do that and kind of, you know, it's all kind of, it's all kind of nonsense, but it but it can be an important nonsense for some people. But I guess the relevant point here is that we're not in a situation, as far as you can tell, where if, you know, if there's only nine Republican senators, suddenly like a billion dollars of the plan just goes up in thin air and it's gone. That's not no. going to happen. No, I, I think what you're capturing is right. And honestly, like, who are the people who are going to be pissed about accepting these GOP negotiated proposals into reconciliation? It would be the progressives, right? But at that bigger fish to fry, you know, I mean, they're fighting for kind of, you know, historic anti-poverty measures, the, the most we've ever done as a country on climate change. I just, I really don't think they're kind of going to waste their time worrying about, you know, maybe we should have gotten a few more million here and a few more million here that we would have had if the Republicans weren't, you know, at that point, I just think they're going to be more concerned with, you know, their kind of their pet issues that are getting airtime for the first time in years. Right. right. Well, and again, it, it's, if I'm understanding this and, and the electric vehicle thing seems to me to be like an example of that, that if, if there's a fourth of the spending on electric vehicle infrastructure, fourth is better than nothing. Great. Put it in, and then you try to get the other three quarters in the right. in the non mini bill. You know, 
Right. <laughs> it's all kind of fungible at a certain level. Um, yeah. But but again, as far as I can tell, there's not much or maybe anything that is affirmatively bad. It's just insufficient. Right. And to the extent it's insufficient, just work to add your stuff into the into the, the 3.5 trillion. Um, right. But it does. With a, cov- yeah. with a caveat that we haven't seen legislative text of the bipartisan bill yet. So we are still somewhat operating off you know, kind of outlines, but right, yeah, that's right. my understanding as well. Right. Right. Okay. So even so, though and- I was just going to say the newest uh, kind of Republican wobbling, like we mentioned, um, happened today because Chuck Schumer said, I'm, I'm bringing this bill up for a vote next Wednesday. So kind of have your ducks in a line or not. That's when we're going. And then it's just so predictable. It's already happened so many times that all the Republicans are like, Oh, absolutely not. Like, I will not vote for it. Like, we need the time to do the legislative text. I saw, I, oh my God, I can't remember who it was, but I saw one quote that was like, well, what if they want to go out to dinner and discuss things? You know, now they're on a timeline. <laughs> You're like, oh well, let me God. let me ask you this. Besides the nonsense, is it, mm-hmm. are they even, I mean, at the end of the day, you do have to have legislative text. Right. That is, I mean, that's a real thing. Are mm-hmm. they even close to having legislative text? Well, that's the thing about all this Republican belly aching is before Schumer said this, everyone who I talked to who was involved in the bipartisan bill was saying by Thursday, they're pretty much going to have all the issues ironed out at the member level, which means, you know, it's already gone through staff and all. So, I mean, that's end of the line. You're going to have yeah. these poor staffers working all weekend long, but it didn't seem to me until Schumer made that announcement that they were particularly far off from being done, you know, right. but okay. now they're, you know, they are kind of manufacturing fury over this deadline. So, which of course is just feeding the conviction of all the Democrats who were like, oh, they're just trying to drag this out until 2022 when we lose the house, you know? Well, it's interesting because there was, you know, one of the, one of the insider newsletters is this, is this uh, punch bowl publication, new publication uh, with, you know, a lot of big uh, uh, DC reporter names. And in their uh, lead newsletter this morning, they had a, a thing where they, they basically said, okay, here's how the Democrats see are seeing this. You know, I guess the point is Democrats think they're they're killing it here, and the Republicans think they're killing it here. And here's both of their theories of why they're killing it. And um the Democrats one was basically a version of what you and I have just discussed. Everybody's pumped, they feel like they've kind of, you know, everybody's on board, blah, 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 blah. It's moving, blah, and blah. Okay. Pretty much what we've just said. Mm-hmm. And then the Republicans think they're winning because uh, it's big spending and the public's going to hate it. And so if if it if it fails, good for Republicans, because that means Democrats don't go- can't govern. And if it wins, uh, public's going to hate it. So it's a win for them, too. And, um, you Wait, know, why maybe- would the public hate it? Is the public supposedly oriented against big government spending? Well, that's certainly the premise of being a Republican, and who knows? You know, we don't, we don't, we don't know. But certainly, uh, that is that is something that that doesn't seem like a big threat to me, because that's sort of baked into wanting to pass the bill, mm-hmm. right? If you want to pass like a three point five trillion dollar bill, you're gonna have 
you've either assumed it's going to be popular or you're accepting that it might not be popular and you're doing it anyway. So like, whatever, that doesn't really, it's kind of neither here nor there. And it, and it did make me think when I, when I, um, when I read that, you know, because look, there's, there is a constituency for, oh, it's big government socialism, spending like a drunken sailor, blah, 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 blah. You know, and you connected to things like that's why prices of prices of rental cars are going up. Even if it's not, people whatever. There's a there's a constituency for that kind of stuff. But it did make me think like this is pretty this is kind of weak sauce from the Republicans here, because it sounds like they're saying they're losing. And they think that it's gonna be unpopular. But again, that's something that you know, maybe it will be unpopular, but that's kind of baked in to the to the plan of wanting to pass the bill, right? And um, I think Democrats know, as you just alluded to, that there's a pretty decent chance they're they're not going to control all of Congress next year, and uh, for reasons that have, you know, everything could be popular and they can still lose the House. So kind of, I don't know, that that made me think that kind of like, it sounds to me like Republicans are kind of feel like they're losing this. And they're going to their sort of ingenuous reporter friends and like, oh, we've got them right where we want them. They're going to pass their whole agenda and it's they're going to be so sorry. Yeah. So. I mean, on spec, that just sounds so insane to me. Like, I get it. The, the simplified Republican ideology is you don't like big government spending. However, the people who are going to say, oh, it's a socialist slush fund have been saying it since Biden took office. I don't think there's anything he could do to prevent that from being the case. And then for most people who don't pay close attention to this stuff, and maybe the only thing they'll take away from the package is the extended child tax credit, I think most people like getting free stuff or cheaper stuff. So, yeah, and there's, 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 uh, you know, the, the, I think the open question is, is how effective Democrats are in selling it. Right. Right. That you, that, uh, it, one of the lessons that I think Democrats have mostly learned, but we'll see how much they have learned, that a lot of the stuff that, uh, President Obama and, and the, you know, Democratic Congress at the time did in 2009, 2010, they sort of almost intentionally kept it hidden, right? We kind of like, just, we'll just kind of get it in there and in, in fiddling with the, with the holding formulas and stuff like that. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta say what you're doing, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I, you know, I think the, the other thing that, that is easy to undersell is people don't like seeing helplessness. And if you are put into power, people want to see you getting things done separate from how much you necessarily agree with all the things you're doing. Going up there saying, we got all these important things to do and you get elected and then you don't do them. That is just a, you're obviously demoralizing your supporters who, who wanted you to do the stuff, but you're also sending a sign of weakness to the people who are maybe a little more middling and, you know, are kind of on the fence. Fecklessness is not a, is not a good selling point, right? Mm-hmm. Fecklessness is not a good selling point in our individual lives, right? You're kind of like, if you've got a colleague or something like, man, I'm getting nothing done. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, well, great, dude. <laughs> um, 
so I, I, I do think that um, being able to follow through on your commitments and things you say are important is a big deal in itself beyond yeah. how much people support or don't support the individual policies. Right. Well, and I think, you know, at this point, kind of riling up the Democratic base is more important than offending small government conservatives who are not going to vote for a Democrat anyway. So, yeah. and, you of know, course, yeah. again, just based on the energy on the Hill today, it's just, I think there's been a concern that, you know, Biden wrote in on this wave of, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bring it back to normal. And then he gets in. And then there are things like the filibuster, which take entire huge swaths of his agenda, which Democrats earnestly believe are absolutely crucial and absolutely earnest, just off the table. But now there's this chance, you know, I mean, Ossoff described it to me today as a, a once in a generation chance to address things that you know, Democratic voters feel very strongly about. So, yeah, I think that's a silly argument. I do think it's a cover for Losing. they just got in over their heads here. You know, yeah. they let the bipartisan bill get too far. They really thought Democrats would shoot themselves in the foot on reconciliation and they didn't or haven't, you know. So I've been kind of wondering what Mitch McConnell's strategy has been this whole time because it kind of seems like the Democrats are getting basically everything they wanted, at least so far. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I sort of wonder too. I mean, there's a lot of lessons learned, I think, from the last time we were at this in, in, in 2009 and, 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 and 2010. And I, I do think, and, and this is a, a semi-pessimistic take, but I think is actually the real take, and it, it's pessimistic in a way and not pessimistic, that as we know, there's some basic, big structural problems for the Democrats going into 2022 that we all understand. And if they can pass a big program now, Say they do lose the House or even they lose the Senate. Terrible, 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 terrible. Joe Biden's still president. Mm -hmm. That means that this will be law for at least three years. And it will only stop being law if Republicans totally take over the federal government in uh, 2025. That could happen. I don't think it will happen, but it could happen. But even then, if you've had a number of years to, you know, if if you, and and this is again is is another key issue of um of how you sell it, and also how you stage it, right? So if you are, uh, let's say again, pass a big bill, but then um it you know then then they lose Congress. And, uh, you know, Republicans pass bills over uh, getting rid of it all. Biden um, vetoes it, blah, 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 all, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you're already building the new roads, if you're already installing the uh, electric car infrastructure, it's going to be a lot harder for Republicans to come in in 2025 and say, OK, you know, that bridge we're building in your in your hometown you know, it's it's now halfway across the river. We're done. 
you know, once things are actually happening, it's a, it's a lot harder. So the, the reality is that uh, maybe the Democrats do have a bad midterm. Maybe they lose Congress. Maybe it's not as popular as you think in the short term, much as Obamacare was not popular in the short term. It was really unpopular. It lost the Democrats Congress. Now everybody loves it. If you can get something big done now, you can accept a lot of bad things happening in the, you know, in the short term. Bad political outcomes. There is the existential point that's just, they got to do climate change now. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, politically good, politically bad. There's no choice. You got to do it. Yeah. Well, and again, and that is, and again, this is, this is why, and this is something that uh, Schatz made a point in this, in this uh, briefing that, that I did uh, with him a little earlier today, um, that it matters a lot how you, um, how you write the actual text to get it really right. Because not only do do if you're spending a lot of money, you want to make sure you're spending it in a in a in a in a in the right way, but you need to get the money out there. You need to start projects because once they're started, again, whatever the project is, whatever the climate infrastructure is, whatever the refitting homes, whatever you know, uh, electric vehicle stuff. If people are seeing that happening. In 2022, in 2023, in 2024, even if you had a, even if you have a really bad 2024 election, it's going to be difficult to actually stop things that are happening and people are seeing and people are already getting the benefit from. So it's not just it's it's not just um, it's not just whether Democrats are successful over the next two or three months. It's how you roll that out over the next three years. And that's why holding the presidency is a really big fucking deal, to, to paraphrase Joe, you know, <laughs> Vice President Joe Biden, right? Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's why, that's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> All right. So should we uh, take a brief foray back in time to General Milley on the day of the insurrection? Yeah. yeah. So what do you, so what's, what's what your, are, I mean... Well, why don't you kind of of give me your summary first? Because I have to say, I've read this stuff in passing, but infrastructure has kind of sucked up all my time and energy. Well, basically, he's he's saying that, um, you know, from the moment that it was clear Trump had lost, Mm -hmm. he was seeing a lot of ominous signs kind of across the government that this guy is not going to voluntarily leave office. And some of it was, you know, firing a lot of the sort of the big people in the government and replacing the, you know, canning Bill Barr, Mm -hmm. canning the Secretary of Defense, stuff like that, you know, putting kind of lackeys in place. That is what you would do if you were planning something to get all the people who, I mean, it's hard to see like, you know, it's hard to now see Bill Barr as one of the adults in the room. Or that Esper guy, but kind of right, you know, compared to who they were were replaced by, um, and then like there's this one thing, I guess some some old friend of his, which again he's career military, you kind of get a sense that's probably another retired general. Okay, contacts him and saying like they're going to do a coup, and like 
it's up to you guys to prevent it. You know, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty glorifying narrative about him, right? He knew that the republic was republic but was going to do anything about it. Well, I think that um, I think as I am, you know, picking up from these different articles, I think they were read. I think their surmise of what the plan would be would be to create a crisis, to create a climate of unrest, invoke the Insurrection Act, basically call out the military, and through that, not have a transfer of government. And if you take this narrative at face value, what they did was basically a plan to everybody down the line would successively resign at the Pentagon so that the orders could not be given, you know, kind of mass resignations. Um, and I buy that, that it, that is what, that is what general officers should do in that case. You don't like send some troops over to arrest the president, right? I mean, this is, it's a, they're not supposed to be involved at all. Um, and their best route is, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of concerted non-involvement. You know, we're not going to be part of this. Um, so, you know, and there is stuff. I have to go back and look at my notes and look at some of my posts. But there were a number of things that happened that were kind of cryptic and 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 ambiguous at the time in December and January coming out of the Pentagon and coming out of people kind of around the Pentagon. Weird stuff where they would kind of, and again, this isn't exactly what happened, but there were stuff kind of like this where, you know, the, the all the Joint Chiefs put out a statement saying, we're, a, you know, we're a Republic of Laws. We don't, we don't have insurrections. Mm -hmm. We don't have coups. Hope everybody understands, you know, just letting every reminding everybody we're not going to have a coup. And you're sort of like, oh, what's that about? Like, that's kind of fucked up. Like, what do you, you know, there, there's, and again, I'm not saying that exact thing happened, but there were things like that, that map to kind of what he seems to be describing. So I, again, this is obviously kind of, his version of events is inherently mm -hmm. kind of self-serving. But there's a decent amount of stuff we know that we knew contemporaneously that kind of matches up to that. Um, and I did a post on this. Uh, I, I lose track of days yesterday or today. This is why you need an investigation. Because, you know, you can't take his self serve you know, because again, there was, there was, he showed up at the Lafayette Square thing, right? He, <laughs> Trump got a lot of egg on his face and he had to apologize for that. And for people who follow kind of Pentagon stuff, the idea was there's, you know, there's only ever two or three people who are really in the running to be the, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You don't just, you know, hire some colonel to do it, right? You have to be right at the very pinnacle. And there's, again, a few people who could get chosen. And the idea was at the time that, Millie kind of, you know, kind of brown nose a little more effectively and kind of like, you know, curry, you know, curried favor with Trump and, and to get the job. Um, so you can't take everything at face value. But again, this is why you need an, an investigation, because you, you 
it's one thing to talk to some reporter for the Washington Post. You put everybody under oath and see what they say and see what adds up and see, you know, see who's giving you the straight story and who's who's just, you know, covering themselves and stuff. But You know, I, I I think he's more credible than not. Let's put it that way. That is my initial impression. Let's put it that way. Yeah, man, he really is king of the self-redemption, I guess. You know, it was just so striking after the Lafayette Square thing that the story came out, like, obviously fed by him, but where he was like, I spent all night thinking that I should resign all night I spent <laughs> agonizing. And then it's like, okay. And then you did it. And you right, also right. did it in the first place. You right. know, he yeah. is yeah. honestly like pretty gifted at this kind of retroactive. You should be sympathetic for me to me, even though I did nothing to stop the bad thing as it was happening. And I've since taken no steps to show any remorse other than implying that I am now remorseful. You know, well, I will, I will say, and again, I don't, I don't want to get too far out on, on, you know, it, this is one of the, this is one of the challenges of the Trump era that you're so looking for people who anybody who will do the right thing. You kind right. of, when you see someone maybe kind of did the right thing, you're like, oh, he's the best and all this kind of stuff. Um, he did apologize. Yeah, he did. Um, and, you know, great. Apologize. But like under Trump, you don't apologize. You That's certainly fair. don't apologize for something Trump wanted you to do. Um, and so I give him credit for that. That's that's a that's a. That is, um, I've never, well, I have never seen a chairman of the Joint Chiefs do something that he would think he needed to apologize for. I mean, you can say there's a lot of things that we do that you should apologize, but I'm talking about those kind of things, right? Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't nothing. Yeah. Um, okay. My, fair. Credit my, where credit is done. Yeah. I still think he's a spin master, but he oh, does get credit for apologizing. He's definitely a spin master. There's no question. He 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 worked these two Washington Post reporters who basically seem to have put out a book where the whole thing is basically Millie is awesome and and we only have a democracy now because of because of the chairman. So he's definitely a spin master. There's no question. The question is is you know how much of it bears out. And and mm -hmm. we should find out. We should find and out how we much will, of it. Starting uh, yeah. July twenty seventh, first hearing of the select committee. So okay, so yeah, so so you you put on that story too. So what's what's the now? Here, here's here's my question because I feel like over the last few months, every few weeks, I'll find out. Oh, this committee's getting this dude to come up, or it's. Chris Ray, or it's or it's this guy, and there's kind of been smack, you know, this thing and that, and kind of like each time it's like, okay, that was interesting, but like doesn't seem to amount to anything. Yeah. So how is this one going to? How is okay? So so great. There's there's going to be a you know first hearing in a week or so or a couple weeks. How is this? What's what's going to happen? Is it is this different? Is it really going to? Are we are we really going to start finding stuff out? Well, I don't think that I think this first one is more of a a Kevin McCarthy decide if you're going to participate or not and be kind of starting it off on what's going to be a flashy, much covered emotional note. They're they're only bringing in police officers who were there that day. So it's going to be emotional. It's going to be firsthand. You know, I think they're just kind of trying to start off with a bit of a 
you know, bang. For, yeah. for, for the media, it'll be very headliney, everything like that. Um, but I think w- the difference, part of the difference is that so far, because it's been these disparate committees trying to handle it, they can never get all the people you need in the room at the same time. And it's made for so many opportunities for buck passing because there's always someone higher up in the chain, you know, and a lot of our questions are still unanswered because of that. So I think if you've got a committee that is backed up with subpoena power to compel these people to all get in the room at the same time, and you hopefully the, the staff for these appointees have been watching these other committee hearings and realize who you all need to be in the room together at the same time to make sure that one guy just can't be like, oh, don't know about my pay grade. You know what I mean? Um, You also, I think there is the benefit of they have more leeway in what's a public and what's a private hearing. And as much as, you know, obviously we are journalists, we advocate for public hearings, but they become so performative. And then these lawmakers are just kind of using them you know, to cut campaign ads or to prove like I'm a, I'm a feisty ex prosecutor, you know, look at me question. And they just, they don't coordinate among themselves. They don't, honestly, like people like AOC are the only ones who are good at this, where they actually craft a line of questioning that you can do in three minutes, you know, Mm -hmm. that are direct, that are hard to evade. Almost no one else is good at it. So they've just kind of flitter all their time away and we end up with nothing. So if you actually have a dedicated staff who's working on this and only this, communicating with each other, crafting their questions, um, and it's not this like five minutes of grandstanding, I just think you'll be able to actually get at get at the details a lot better than a congressperson who's just kind of whipped up their questions two minutes before coming. Um, well, it's also, yeah. it, it's also that, and and we'll see what McCarthy does, but, but mm-hmm. at the moment, it's a bunch of Democrats like Liz Cheney. All yep. of whom have like a real interest in getting to the bottom of things. And you're not going to have like Jim Jordan there come, you know, doing some QAnon thing or something like that. And that's so that's going to be really interesting what McCarthy decides. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, you can say you're boycotting it and say it sucks. But like, man, that's if no one is if no one is talking your story during the hearings, that's actually not great. And, and there's the additional fact that Nancy Pelosi doesn't have to accept everybody. Mm-hmm. If it's like Jim Jordan, she can just say no. I mean, maybe she'll decide that that's good in some sense, but it's up to her. Um, and and the thing, you know, when you said, you know, so I guess the first one is, you know, police officers who were there that day, that's going to be powerful and that's good. But the thing that really does what I hope is going to happen and what is really valuable is take this Millie thing where you say like, you know, okay, we talked to everybody at the Pentagon who was there. We talked to all the generals. We subpoenaed the civilian leaders. We talked to this person who was at the Trump White House. And here's what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, here is what happened. That is worth knowing. And I mean, I'm not, there is a place for emotional testimony. And I'm sure you're going to have like, oh, what happened to you? Well, I was dragged out into a crowd and beat over the head with a flagpole. Whoever that person is gets yep. is entitled to make, you know, to explain what happened to them. And that's very powerful. But at a basic level, we know that happened. Right. And and there, but there's a lot we don't know. And and with this with this Millie thing is a good example. Is what he's saying, is that really what happened? Right. And and if it is, we should know some more. Right. And 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 uh uh, 
generals still work for the government, right? And so legally and just in terms of political reality, they can't be saying, well, not sure I can go there. And like, dude, you got to go there. You need to, you know, you don't just tell the Washington Post and you tell the country what happened. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll see. And do they have, is, uh, there's nothing scheduled so far besides that first thing. That's just, Mm -mm. that's the first thing out there. Yeah, I really think it was just a line in the sand to force McCarthy to play his hand one way or another. But yeah, I mean, it's the first time a committee is going to have the staff, the funding, the manpower and the focus to only do January 6th for however long it takes them. And none of these committees have been, you know, able to do that. It's just they have one hearing on it and then they move on. That's just it's not enough time to get everyone up to speed and on all the particulars and learn the minor characters and everything like that, that the way that this committee will be able to. And so, so far, it's seven Democrats and Liz Cheney, and that's it. And it's and it's now up to McCarthy whether he wants to to nominate potentially up to five Republicans, right, to be there. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, everything I've seen indicates that he will. And kind of like you alluded to, it seems pretty insane not to. I mean, he can still, even if he's got his people on the committee, be like Pelosi rigged it. It's partisan, which I'm sure he will, but. You know, it's going to be heavily covered no matter what he wants. People are going to know about it. So yeah. really, you want no one in your corner? That just seems unwise. Yeah, because when I, when I envision it, when I think about him just boycotting it, I think, great. Because it, when you think about how those hearings go, it's, you know, one of the one of the things is, is that you have half the time with a, with a bunch of people just screaming, you know, just saying stuff to confuse everybody. And that at a minimum sort of breaks the stride of, of what you're trying to get to the bottom of, right? Because right. you're having half the time with people doing that kind of stuff. Um, but just kind of in general, if you, if you envision one of those things and you say, okay, how about we're never going to get to the Republicans? We're just going to have eight people who really wanted to get to the bottom of this and give them all the time. I mean, <laughs> great. That sounds awesome to me, right? And, and it wouldn't be awesome if that's how you enforced it. But I mean, if the Republicans want to make this choice for themselves, great. Right. Fantastic. Exactly. You know, so I guess we'll see. All right. We've got one question this week. They've been drying up a bit. So people, send your questions to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Yeah, but low this energy is from, people. This is from Sam, which thank you for sending it in. Totally different track, but it's an interesting question. He said um, he's interested in the recent media coverage of Vice President Kamala Harris, particularly accounts of dysfunction in her office and among aides. At its surface, the coverage seems a bit peculiar because she's only been in office for about six months. Wondering if there are elements, racial or otherwise, shaping the media coverage. What do you think? Yeah, I think the racism, sexism stuff definitely plays in. I think to some degree, everyone always talks about how being a vice president is a hard job. And she in particular has been handed an impossible portfolio. You know, what she's been given so far, immigration and voting issues, two things that are currently dead on arrival. So you're almost like, well, what's she supposed to do? There's nothing she can do about those particular issues. I think the dysfunction thing, I saw the big story everyone was talking about where they were kind of going after her one longtime aide for 
it seemed like putting a barrier between her and people who she's had long time relationships with her who like want stuff from her and want access to her. And my, my kind of first impression of that is like, isn't that that person's job? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. When totally. someone becomes really high profile to kind of be a gatekeeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, we kind of always see these, especially office dysfunction stories are always about women, about female lawmakers. There was that whole dust up with Amy Klobuchar um, a while ago. And, you know, the root of it is I'm not saying women can't be bad bosses. But I'm saying I think there are a lot of male lawmakers who are probably terrible bosses who don't have that same ink spilled. So, you know, that's kind of my my initial impression of it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think two things. I see it as a given that there is a strong racial and gender component to all of these stories. Again, but that's just a given. I take that as that is that's the baseline. I think there's another fact that is tied to those, but sort of distinct. And that is that Joe Biden is this old Catholic white guy who Republicans and to a certain extent, the press have had a terrible time getting any traction against. I'm not saying the press is against him per se, but press is sort of supposed to be adversarial, right? Um, and there's this angle and that angle, but just a lot of the public, a lot of the public that is not diehard Trump, even if they don't support him, she just seems like a pretty decent guy. You know, Uncle Joe, glad handing. Has, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just has the has the best motives and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of just can't get there with him. And, and uh, you know, the Republicans are still saying how he's how he's, uh, you know, has dementia and he's low energy and all this kind of stuff. Frankly, he seems pretty, pretty with it for someone his age. I know a lot of people in their late 70s, very few of them are, are, are that on top of things. I mean, frankly, same applies to Nancy Pelosi and, and I mean, truth be told, Mitch McConnell. These are people are all old. They're all almost 80 or actually I think Pelosi is 80. Um, maybe even, I can't remember, 81, 80, something like that. Uh, and the people, they're not getting traction with Biden. And, and certainly some aspect of that is that he's a old white grandfather and people just don't, you know, that's, that's, that's just hard to crack. And so that leaves uh, Kamala Harris as that's where you're going to go. And she's a black woman, right? And that's different. And that, that, that provides various levels of traction. So um, I think that's a big part of it. I will say, however, when she ran for president, her campaign was not as good as I thought it was going to be. She, she bobbles stuff sometimes. Um, and she kind of gets ahead of herself sometimes. And what I at least saw during the campaign was in the point in, in the part of the campaign when it was early in the primary cycle, where you are basically finding constituency groups that you're going to say, yes, totally on board with your thing. In a number of cases, she 
made had statements were like, yes, I'm totally on board with that. And only later figured out like, okay, wait a second, maybe I'm not on board with that because that is either really unpopular or I actually don't agree with that. And, and those are the things that, um, that is some, that, those are things that politicians have to be able to get right. Um, and, uh, so I, I do think there are some, again, she's not a perfect politician. She bobbles things sometimes. So I do think that is a, that is some, not, not the office dysfunction thing, but kind of like, oh, and she went to, you know, she made this statement and they had to walk it back or whatever, you know, he's not, not, a, not, a, not a perfect politician. So I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a mix of all of those things. Um, and it, but again, I think a big part of it is sort of like Republicans are are had a streak of of the top cheese was a black guy or a woman, right? <laughs> they're, they're they're missing that now. They've got an right. old white guy, and they can't and 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 that makes it. He's just hard to demonize, and it is very it is bad that it is a reality that in our culture. The fact that he is an old white guy makes him harder to demonize, but that is our reality. And so that means a lot of the focus is going to turn to her. Well, and it's she's so a funny. black woman. It's like you just, you proved your own point by saying she, you know, she's not the perfect politician. She bobbles things. She gets out ahead of causes before she's thought it through. All three of those things describe Joe Biden perfectly. King of the gaffes, bobbles things out on you know, gay marriage before the administration. It's just funny that like for a black woman kind of that's a source of constant political trouble and not that it hasn't for Biden, it has, mm -hmm. but it also contributes directly to yeah, this ambiance of being authentic and folksy and saying what he means. Yeah, I think, I think that's part of it. I think there is a, there is a difference though. Um, at least I perceive that like it's, it, it's funny now how at the time that was a big bobble for Joe Biden, mm -hmm. but it was clear that he just said what he thought. And yep. now it's like, it's in his campaign ads. Remember mm -hmm. when I bobbled gay marriage <laughs> and, and made it and made gay marriage be, you know, become a real forced thing. Obama into yeah, it. Yeah. yeah forced Obama. It's not the best thing he ever did. Um, but on the authenticity thing, again, at least my perception during the primaries was that Harris, a little too frequently, anybody had an idea that seemed like they liked, she was going to say, yes, sounds great. And you can't always say it's great because maybe it's not great or maybe the politics aren't quite what you thought. So it doesn't, I don't think it quite plays the same on the, on the authenticity front. Again, this is just my subjective uh, sense, and this is why. I mean, at the beginning of the primary cycle, I was like, "Wow, she's you know she's she's got it all, right? She's really kind of she's made for the moment and everything." But she did she did not she was not a, as good a candidate as I thought she was going to be. Um, so I think it's all of those things. Um, but again, I don't think we should think of it as is it you know is it about race and gender? Of course, it's about race and gender. It's a question of how much of it is that, but that that to me is a is a um, that to me is a given. And on that depressing note, 
All right. Yes, it, we're here to depress you. Let me remind you, as uh, on this, on uh, as long as we are finishing up here, that um, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. And hey, we weren't. I didn't even discuss with Kate that we we're going to men- mention this, but you know, coming up soon, we are going to have once a month. We are going to have an extra episode just for subscribers. And that is super cool. And, you know, we thought about this because a lot of podcasts have like, you know, an extra thing if, you, if, you're, if you're a subscriber to the publication. And we didn't want to do it where we're kind of like taking something away. So nothing is going to change. If, 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 if the weekly podcast is your jam and you're loving it and you're not a subscriber and you don't want to become a subscriber, fantastic. We're going to keep doing this till the end of time. Or till the earth, you know, to the earth uh, burns to a cinder. Um, but we are going to add this extra thing, and we'll we'll tell you more about that in 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 the coming weeks. But that's just a little kind of extra thing. If you are a if you are a TPM member, uh, if you subscribe to our publication, just a little extra thing because it's an awesome thing to do. Totally. Yeah. Remember, as usual. Uh, Keep on the theme song submissions. We've been getting tons of them. It's awesome. And, and they're really Sending good. Those. I've been loving really them. Really good. I, yeah. Like I'll kind of like sometimes in the evening, I'll just like sit there and like uh, kind of go through. Oh, that one's pretty good. Huh. I like that. Yeah. You're all, yeah, you're all very talented. So send us your songs and questions to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. All right. All right. Later. See you next week. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.